welcome to another Vital Moments in Naturopathic Medicine. I'm your host, Beth Hendry Yim, and I'm here on this lovely May morning with my husband and naturopathic physician, John Yim. Now, after almost two and a half months seeing patients via phone or video away from the office, we're now gearing up to reopen in a few days on June 1st. Now, other businesses are doing the same, stepping into phase two of the pandemic. Now, I've heard you say, John, that in this day and age, it's vital for our adrenal glands to be working well. Why is that, especially in light of moving into phase two? Well, Beth, you probably know that I love talking about the adrenal glands. Well, really, I love talking about any topic to do with health. But the reason that, especially now, is because all of us are under increased stress whether it's uh, for financial reasons or social isolation. And the adrenal glands function is to help our bodies deal with the effect of stress. And so right now, when we're under more stress, if we're not keeping our adrenal glands strong, um, one of the main concerns around COVID is our immune system. If your immune system um, is not working well and you get sick, you know, the, the disease will be more intense. So by keeping the adrenal gland strong, it actually has a very important impact on the function of the immune system. The other is, is, you know, with COVID, they talk about the cytokine storm. And what that means is that there's a tremendous amount of inflammation that happens in the body during this disease. And again, it's the, 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 the adrenal gland's job to help deal with inflammation in the body. So the, the stronger your immune system is, the better we can deal with inflammation. So that's just a few things. So you mentioned a little bit about how the adrenals impact our health, but what exactly do your adrenals do? First of all, there's two parts to the adrenal glands and the out, the inner part are also called the, the medulla is responsible for producing adrenaline and noradrenaline or medically they're called epinephrine and norepinephrine. And these two hormones regulate the fight or flight response. So when we're angry or we're scared under acute stress, adrenaline is what's released to help us deal with, with, with that kind of stress. The, the um, outer part or the cortex of the adrenal glands produces cortisol and, and aldosterone. So aldosterone is very important for electrolyte balance um, through its function on the kidneys and it can have an effect on blood pressure. Cortisol, we know, is, is more to do with managing long-term stress, um, managing inflammation. Um, the, the outer part also can um, have an effect on growth and even produce some of the sex hormones. You know, in a woman, we think of the ovaries as the main uh, producers of estrogen, but the adrenal glands produce some estrogen as well. Just as in men, uh, testosterone is produced mostly in the testicles, but um, the adrenal glands can produce some testosterone as well. So those are just some of the other things that the adrenal glands do. Aside from stress, what other things negatively impact adrenals? Well, we think about stress in this day and age as being more um, mentally emotional things, right? Like uh, troubles at work, financial stress, relationships, but, you know, um, physical stress. Physical stress can be things like um, overwork, you know, people that are physically overworking or um, 
athletes that are overtraining, even weekend athletes that are, are um, going to the gym too often and, and working out too intensely, that can really wear down the adrenal glands. But the other thing that I think that's more important that we see is um, dietary habits that are bad for the adrenals. And that can um, vary from eating irregularly, going long periods of time. So we're not talking about fasting or intermittent fasting when we're intentionally doing that. But during the, the, the waking day, when you, you have lunch and maybe dinner is not till 10 o'clock at night, well, that's going an extremely long time during the day without eating. And um, that forces the adrenal glands to try to increase your blood sugar for energy. On the other hand, eating too much refined carbohydrates like sugars and, and um, refined starches can have a very quick elevation of the blood sugar. And in a way, that's like giving yourself a little bit of a, a momentary stress. And again, that forces the adrenal glands to have to compensate for that. So yeah, um, diet is one of the big things that can impact the adrenal glands. So over time, what does chronic stress actually do to the adrenals? So with chronic stress, you know, mentioned that um, if it's acute stress, it's adrenaline that's released first. But as stress continues, um, more and more cortisol is released. Now, both of these hormones, the job is to increase energy so that we can deal with stress and we can overcome whatever the stressors are that we perceive. So one of the first things that we can see um, is elevated blood sugar. Um, we, we might see uh, people having um, insulin resistance, um, weight gain, and people say, well, how can, how can the adrenals have anything to do with weight? Well, with elevated cortisol, it makes the insulin receptors actually more sensitive to insulin, and that means we do more storage. So it doesn't mean that during this pandemic, we're just pigging out and oinking on all the wrong <laughs> things. It's because maybe we're feeling a lot more stress. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Mm. When we're in the fight or flight, um, it's much more difficult to lose weight. Um, now, when with high cortisol, your body will actually deposit more fat and especially around, where do you think? What do you think with, with stress? Ah, the, the middle. Yes, that's right. You get more of that apple shape. So more deposition of fat around the belly with elevated cortisol. So as time goes on and the adrenal glands get more fatigued, then we see things like um, uh, possibly mood changes. So more prone to things like depression, anxiety. Uh, there may be changes with the gastrointestinal system which is one of my areas of focus. So we know with chronic stress, you know, Hans Selle, Canadian um, researcher back in the 60s, he maybe 50s, he was doing research on lab rats. And he found that under chronic stress, these rats would actually develop ulcers. So that's how strong of an impact stress can have on the gut. And I suppose that's why for a while there, medical doctors assumed that all ulcers were caused by stress because it can affect the gut. Um, what else do we see? Immune. When the, when the um, stress is chronic, we see disruptions with the immune system. In some people, the immune system can become weakened, and that makes them more susceptible to opportunistic infections. And, and that's why some people, if they carry, for example, a cold sore virus, it's under times of stress that their cold sores will break out. 
or we might see students around exam time more susceptible to um, colds and flus. And again, at this time with COVID, that's the last thing we want is a weak immune system. But paradoxically, in some people, it actually makes the immune system more hyper. And as our immune systems become more hyper, what kind of things do you think we're going to see? Autoimmunity. Yes, that's the end stage. But what about before that? Well, I guess allergies. Exactly. So as the immune system becomes more hyper, we start reacting to things in the environment that we shouldn't, right? Things like dust, foods, you know, that are, are, um, that are either parts of our environment or things that we consume that shouldn't hurt us. We suddenly be, can be start, um, start becoming allergic to things. And then, like you said... Is it like a true allergy or is it more like a sensitivity? Sensitivities first, but... You know, especially if the gut's being affected, and we know that stress can lead to leaky gut syndrome, and as larger proteins are getting through the gut into the blood, then yes, antibodies can be created against foods, and you can actually develop true allergies um, to environmental and, and, and foods in your diet. And uh, in time, when the immune system becomes overly confused, instead of attacking external things like germs and and allergens it can actually turn on the body itself and we see that quite often under chronic stress that that's when autoimmunity can develop now it doesn't mean everybody under stress is going to develop an autoimmune condition but in people that are genetically susceptible they're going to more likely see an autoimmune disease develop under chronic stress than uh, somebody genetically who's not predisposed. I've heard the term adrenal fatigue. What exactly is that? Are you talking about that as you're talking about what's happening as the adrenal glands keep getting taxed? Yes, yes. You know, when I was in medical school, um, because we were trying to be more medically oriented, meaning Western medicine, oftentimes we were taught about either hypothyroid or hypoadrenal or hyperadrenal. And so from a medical perspective, um, it's believed that you're either one end of the spectrum or the other if there's pathology. But in between, they assume that your adrenal is normal. So what that means is until you have hyperadrenalism, which is called Cushing's disease, and the body's overproducing cortisol, or on the other side of the spectrum, if the adrenal glands are exhausted, meaning they're not producing enough cortisol anymore, that's called Addison's disease. Well, in today's world, there are so many people that are not on the extremes, but they're somewhere in between, but probably more on the lower side of normal. So there's a spectrum. Exactly. Okay. And so that's where the adrenal fatigue comes in. You know, patients can go to their medical doctors and say, you know, doctor, I'm, I'm feeling so much... Um, fatigue and I'm feeling weak and unmotivated. I'm having challenges with, you know, depression and anxiety. You know, my gut's not what it used to be. And so the doctor can run all kinds of tests and, you know, on the very odd time, and I say odd time because in 26 years of practice, I've probably had fewer than five people come in to see me that told me that their medical doctors tested their adrenal function. And when they did, it was usually on the patient's insistence. And oftentimes, not often, every single time the doctor said, there's nothing wrong with your adrenals. And so what the, what they, what that means is that 
according to the reference ranges for normal adrenal function, they don't fall outside of that. So they're not under the range, which would actually diagnose Addison's disease, and they're not overproducing cortisol, which would diagnose Cushing's disease. But if you're low normal, you could still be having what's called adrenal fatigue and all the symptoms of low adrenal function, but you're not off the scale yet. So when a patient comes in to see you, um, what triggers you to think it could be adrenal fatigue? What are the signs and symptoms? Okay, so the typical ones, I would say the number one symptom that makes me think adrenals is fatigue. And I have this saying that, that when people are tired of being tired and they're coming to see me, <laughs> first thing I suspect is what's going on with the adrenals. So adrenals, um, blood sugar, so especially when there's problems with low blood sugar. When people tell me if they go too long without eating, they get shaky, they get headaches, they feel trem- trembling. Um, it's the adrenal gland's job to monitor your blood sugar. And so if the adrenal glands are weak, and they're not monitoring your blood sugar and telling your pancreas to help get blood sugar up, you'll start having symptoms of low blood sugar, hypoglycemia, headaches, um, weakness, uh, body aches. And so people that are saying, you know, all my joints are achy, my muscles are sore. I'm thinking, wow, you know, if the adrenals are not um, helping to manage inflammation properly, maybe that's why. Digestive symptoms. Um, irritable bowel syndrome, um, diarrhea, constipation, any of those kind of symptoms, even though I'm focusing on the gut, I'm also thinking, can the adrenal glands be associated with that? So there's there's quite a few different symptoms that people present with that make me think adrenals. So when you're saying this, it makes me realize that with naturopathic medicine, you need that longer visit. Absolutely. This is not just a five-minute or ten-minute visit. This is getting to know the patient and really um, finding out about their history and not just what they eat or not just uh, what they do during the day, what they're exposed to, but their whole environment. Yeah, that's right. Because the you know the patients have a story to tell, and they need time to tell their story. The next thing I want to know is. If the patient comes in and they're presenting these signs and symptoms, are there tests that you like um, having the patient do to give you something more concrete? Absolutely. I mentioned before that, you know, getting blood testing done at, say, a place like Life Lab, the challenge with that style of testing is that you're looking at a moment in time. So, you know, most patients, um, maybe they'll do a 12-hour fast and then they'll go in and, and get their blood drawn. So if if cortisol is on the requisition um, and the doctor's testing the adrenals, what you're testing is what is the cortisol level like at that moment in time? So we know that the, the cortisol production is the highest in the early morning. And then as the day goes on, the, um, the cortisol levels naturally drop. So depending on the time of the day that patient goes into the, the lab to get the blood drawn, that can influence the levels of cortisol. So the two tests that, that I think are very helpful, you know, we've done uh, something called the cortisol curve. And that's, by, um, that's done by taking four saliva samples through the course of a day. So one sample at 8 a.m., one at 12 noon, one at 4 p.m., and one at 8 p.m. So that way we can monitor what's the cortisol 
levels doing at different times of the day. So in the morning, when cortisol normally should be high, if a person's cortisol is low normal or low, then what they're going to see is they wake up and they have no energy in the morning. You know, after a good sleep, most of us should feel refreshed and ready to go. But in these people that have low cortisol in the morning, they don't feel refreshed and they're dragging their butts, right? And then at noon, at 4, 8 p.m., we should see a dropping in the cortisol. But in a person that's saying, well, you know, after I eat dinner and in the evening, my energy actually picks up and then I have a hard time falling asleep. I have a hard time turning my mind off. If we look at the cortisol curve and we see that the cortisol is actually increasing or higher than normal in the evening, but it's low during the day, what's happened is that these people, their circadian rhythm of their, their adrenal glands have flipped. So instead of cortisol being high in the morning, they're low in the morning. And instead of cortisol being low in the evening, it's elevated. So that's why this patient is showing this picture. If we did a one-time cortisol draw, we wouldn't see that pattern. You know, if, if it's low in the morning, we might see that. But if we didn't do the test in the evening, we wouldn't know that that patient's um, cortisol is high in the evening. So that's the beauty of doing uh, a four-time collection. So we see what's going on with cortisol through the course of a day. And as you monitor your patient with these tests, um, uh, how often do you see the, the improvement? Yes, um, often, because there are so many natural things, that which we'll get to in a minute, that can be done to support and nourish the adrenals and improve their function. Right? The, the worst thing that we can see when we do this test is that some people, they're flatlining which means there is no curve. They're not producing more cortisol in the morning. And we're seeing that downward curve. It's it's almost like a flat curve. And these are people that are heading more towards Addison's where they're not able to produce enough cortisol at any time of the day. So these people have fatigue all day long. There's not that sudden surge of energy in the evening like some people whose circadian rhythm of adrenals have flipped and they're actually able to produce more cortisol in the evening. So what are the most effective things for um, improving and supporting and rebuilding the adrenals? Well, you know, number one is, is looking at the person's lifestyle and diet, right? Because, you know, if they're tremendously stressed in their life, um, we've got to find ways to either lower their sources of stress or help their body deal with the effects of stress better. And I know in this day and age, it's hard to get rid of stress in your life because it can come from so many different sources. But in a person who has many, many things on their plate, but there are things that must be done and there's things that the person's doing more on a volunteer basis or things that they're doing because they enjoy them, then in the beginning, they're going to have to simplify their lifestyle and say, okay, if I only have this much energy and I want to rebuild my adrenals, I can't keep taxing myself and assume that my body's going to get better and my adrenals are going to get stronger no matter what nutrients I take. So that's why it's key to look at how can we simplify because the the thing that the adrenals hate is chaos and the thing that the adrenals love is routine. So if there's too many things pulling you in different directions and there's no routine. That's really well put. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I just had to interrupt. That was well done. I like that. So, you know, we want to simplify our lives and develop more routine. And, and that takes a load off the adrenals. 
But, you know, one of the things that myself and, and um, you know, many people in natural health have promoted over the years is uh, meditation, uh, visualization, breath work. These things can help calm down the, the sympathetic part of the autonomic nervous system, that fight or flight side, and encourage the, the parasympathetic to kick in. And during parasympathetic dominance, you know, our adrenal glands can heal and any other, you know, things going on in the body can heal easier as well. So, you know, the, the lifestyle things like um, gentle, moderate exercise, especially, you know, things like yoga and Tai Chi, you know, these we in the West call them exercise systems. But in the East, these systems were um, developed to increase the vital energy of the body. You know, in India, they talk about um, vital energy. They use the term prana. And, you know, yoga was developed to increase prana, to stimulate the different chakras in the body, the energy centers. And the same with Tai Chi, right? It, it, the Chi part of Tai Chi means life force, you know, or life energy, vitality, you know, vital force. So Tai Chi was not developed so much as an exercise system as it was a system to increase the vital energy of the body. So when we utilize these ancient systems, we can actually help rebuild the adrenal glands and increase the vital energy of the body. Now, I just want to add here, interject here, that uh, on the show notes, we will put a link to our top 10 meditation techniques uh, report. So um, check out our show notes for that. Wow, that's great. Yeah. And then, of course, nutrition. You know, there, I can't say enough about, um, again, even though fasting and intermittent fasting, um, I encourage that as part of the healing process, um, making sure that you're, you know, you're eating um, high nutrient foods through the day to keep your blood sugar stable and to energize your body. Because if during the day your energy demands go up and you're not giving your body enough fuel, then that's very taxing on the adrenals. So again, no matter how many supplements you take for the adrenals, if you're not nourishing your body properly, then that forces the adrenal glands to have to work harder. So let me ask you this. You know, on the TV, we see ads for these sugary uh, cereals <laughs> in the morning with milk. Where is the protein? Is that what we need to look at? Do we need to balance the amount of protein we eat during throughout the day? Yes, absolutely. You know, I think about children um, going off to school in the morning and their breakfast being, you know, their favorite sugar cereal. You know, um, for the first hour or so, you know, their body's loaded with, with um, the glucose and the brain, you know, temporarily is feeling good. It's almost like a drug. And so, you know, adults and children are drawn to sweet and sugar because it stimulates those pleasure centers in the brain. But in time, we know that anything that spikes the blood sugar increases insulin production. So when there's a, a, a very sudden surge of glucose in the blood, there's a greater production of insulin. And so what happens is you have a faster drop in your blood sugar. So with these kids, you know, by 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, their blood sugar is dropped. And now you have kids that are ornery, you know, they're irritable, their focus is poor, their memory, their brain for, for you know, cognitive function and memory is not working well. And that's the same with adults. If we start with a breakfast in the morning of re refined carbs and sugar, then by mid-morning, 
we're hungry, our brains aren't working well, our moods are not very well. So by having some protein and healthy fats in the morning, um, our energy sustained better and we take a load off the adrenals. It's amazing how our body works together. Yes. I mean, the the insulin, the uh, adrenal glands, they all work together. Yes, absolutely. You know, the all the different, you know, organs and endocrine glands, I, I think of them as, as um, band, band members in an orchestra, right? They're all vital to the uh, the outcome and the production that orchestra puts out. So, you know, yeah, they're all important. Okay, so you mentioned earlier when we were talking about testing, uh, about genetics. Now, is there any tests that you can run that would look into genetics? Yes. <laughs> and I know there's a new one. I yeah. know we've been talking about it a yeah. lot. And I thought it would be a good time to just bring it up and introduce it. Yeah. Well, there's actually two. Remember earlier I said that there's two tests that we do. And so this is actually a third test. The second test that we can look at um, adrenal function um, is brand new to our clinic. And it's we call it the CHI. So each of the letters, C-H-I stands for words. So it stands for Comprehensive Hormone Insight. And I think what a great name for this test because it does give us tremendous insight on the what we call the steroid hormones. So that includes um, your adrenal hormones like cortisol, testosterone, estrogen, and progesterone. And so this is a urine test and you collect urine over the course of a day and a half. And so we're looking for the actual hormones in the urine, but also the the um, metabolites of these hormones, so we can see how how you know how is the body breaking producing? Are we producing enough of these? And how are we breaking down these hormones? So, so I, metabolites are the things that are broken down. Yeah, once okay. the once for example estrogen, when estrogen has done its job, you know it's it's sent to the liver through the bloodstream, and it's broken down. It's done its job. Now the, the body has to get rid of it. Now there are different pathways that the liver can use to break down estrogen, and in 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 one pathway, the metabolites are very safe and harmless, but there's another pathway where the metabolites can be more pro-inflammatory and can be disease-causing. Diseases like endometriosis, fibrocystic breast, even uterine or breast cancer, ovarian cancer. So these cancers that are what we call hormone-sensitive can be aggravated when estrogen is not broken down properly. So these this chi test can look like the metabolites and actually show you, you know, are you breaking your hormones down into safe metabolites or not? And how does how is that related to the adrenals? How were the adrenals in there? So all your steroid hormones start from cholesterol, right? So, you know, when people um, talk about eating a very low-fat diet, you know, I'm dead against it because it affects hormone um, production and cortisol needs cholesterol to be made. So when we do the, the chi test... It also looks at, you know, are you producing enough cortisol and is the cortisol being broken down into cortisone and the other metabolites properly? So, and that can affect health as well. Now, I've seen one of these tests. It's very extensive. It's so comprehensive. The information. Yeah, that's why I love the name, right? Comprehensive 
hormone <laughs> insight, right? It really gives the clinician insights on what's going on with the patient. And you can make make choices for treatment from there. Absolutely, absolutely. And then the uh, the test that you're talking about, you know, I love innovation in medicine. And I know that in the future, you know, genetic testing is going to, to give us so much more potential in prevention, right? Because, you know, in the past, medical doctors, when they talk about prevention, they're talking about, you know, an annual physical, your vaccinations, maybe pap smear um, mammograms, you know, for men, you know, checking out your testicles and getting the finger poke. And, you know, (laughs) that's their definition. Don't go any more personal than that. (laughs) That's the definition of prevention. But, you know, in the future, prevention can be having a young child give a saliva sample and find out what kind of genetic uh, potential, both for, you know, um, you know, what are their strengths? Maybe we can figure out what sports this kid is best suited for. I have to tell you <laughs> that we're doing this on our five-month-old granddaughter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the Russians have nothing on us. <laughs> But also, you know, we can see what is the predisposition of this child for um, cardiovascular disease, you know, blood sugar disorders, um, Alzheimer's, right? And you think, well, why would you worry about that as a child? Well, you know, if we know that a child is is, um, prone to blood sugar, well, we're going to have their diet different, right? No, No sugary cereals, you know, watching the amount of carbohydrates, exercising, so um, also the, the genetic test looks at um, nutrient um, demands. So, for example, you know, one person, 400 international units of vitamin D might be fine for them. But if the genetic test shows that this person has a much greater um, requirement for vitamin D for them to be healthy, they may need 4,000 international units. So it's kind of like vitamin A. You know, one person needs to have one carrot a day to get enough vitamin A, but the next person might need 10 carrots a day, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. You know, that's the whole idea. Abram Hoffer, um, originally from Saskatchewan, moved to Victoria. He was the father of orthomolecular nutrition or orthomolecular medicine. And that was his belief as well, is that we all have varying biochemical demands for nutrients and what's enough for one person may be way too low for another person. So with genetic testing, we can identify these individual needs in a person. Um, hormones, again, you know, the, the, the test can either do a male or a female panel and look at um, male hormones or female hormones, depending on the sex of the patient. And again, looking at, you know, are they produce, are they able to produce enough? You know, what is um, the liver's ability to break down these hormones? So uh, even cognitive function. You know, with genetic testing, we can look at um, cognitive potential of of people. So, so we can tell how smart Maze could be. <laughs> yeah. Oh, she's already brilliant. She's a genius. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, the genetic testing, I think, no matter what stage of life that you're in, could could be very useful. But I think, you know, parents with children, wow, you know, to know what your kids. Uh, where their strengths and weaknesses are, you could really, really shape, you know, the the quality of life of your children. It's it's fascinating. You know, it just gives me chills. You can tell by my voice. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, well, we kind of segued on that one. <laughs> well, yeah, did we ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, so getting back to our adrenals, what other things do you do? Like what nutrients, what specific nutrients do you use to help support and rebuild? Yeah, you know, the, the most aggressive thing that we do for the adrenals is, is um, intravenous therapy because, you know, the, the two groups of vitamins that are most important for adrenal uh, function would be the B vitamins, especially B5 and 6. And um, vitamin C, you know, um, the adrenal glands have probably one of or the highest concentration of vitamin C. So when the adrenal glands are very depleted, high dose vitamin C drips can really, in combination with B vitamins and uh, zinc, magnesium, can really help um, nourish the adrenals and get them working better. Traditionally in herbal medicine, you know, we know about the ginsengs um, in China, Korean ginseng. Has been very popular for um, as an adaptogen, uh, a herb that's called ginseng, but it's not really a true ginseng. Is Siberian ginseng, and that's another um, herb that we call an adaptogen, which means it helps the adrenals adapt to the effects of stress. And so it's another uh, nourishing adrenal herb. And more recently, you know, we we're using ashwagandha. Uh, recently, because ashwagandha is an ancient Indian herb, so in Indian medicine. You know, they're, it's their equivalent to, to Chinese um, use of ginseng. So where the Chinese herbalists would use ginseng, you know, the um, Indian herbalists would use uh, ashwagandha. Now, the difference is that I find that ashwagandha, I like to use more when the adrenals are overproducing cortisol because ashwag- ashwagandha can actually help lower cortisol. So in a patient where I'm doing their saliva test, and their cortisol is already low because their adrenals are more fatigued, I would not use a product with ashwagandha. You know, oftentimes you see these combinations and there's stimulating, adrenal stimulating herbs like like Korean ginseng, and you've got ashwagandha in the same product. So it's very (laughs) contradictory to use those two together, right? You're either trying to stimulate the adrenals or you're trying to calm it down. Calm it down is when somebody is in their acute stage and they're overproducing cortisol, you're using the ashwagandha to lower cortisol. But in somebody who has quite chronic adrenal fatigue and they're low in cortisol, you don't want to use ashwagandha. And then rhodiola is another adaptogen. And in um, Western herbal medicine, it's one of the newer ones, newer meaning, you know, probably the last 30 some odd years um, rhodiola, where some of these other herbs are ancient, right? Used for the adrenals. I mean, ginseng has been used for s- literally centuries. So, what about specific nutrients? Like you mentioned, the IV therapy. What about is there specific nutrients that? Now, are you talking about vitamins? Vitamins, yeah, yeah vitamins, yeah. minerals. So, of the B vitamins, the um, pantothenic acid, which is vitamin B five, is the most important um, vitamin. For the adrenals, but we never give high doses of B5 without adding some of the other B vitamins as well, because then you can throw things out of balance. But when we do an IV, there would be much higher amounts of B5 in there as compared to, say, B1, B2, B3. You know, all those are important vitamins. So we will add a B complex along with it. But the B5 might be anywhere from 250 to 500 milligrams in the IV. And most multivitamins, you're lucky if you get five or 10 milligrams. <laughs> <laughs> now, with the IVs, people just 
can't come into the office and or the clinic and get an IV. They have to see a, a naturopath first, right? Yeah, you're right. It's not a bar. You can't just saddle up to the counter and ask for an IV. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <you can. laughs> just put your arm out, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, no, it's a it's an invasive uh, treatment in the way that we're sticking a needle in your vein and we're dripping high amounts of nutrients into your body. So, as a physician. We need to have a history, right? And one of the things, if we're doing high doses of vitamin C, we might want to look at your kidney function. We might want, you know, a blood test to to see whether your kidneys can even tolerate, you know, these high amounts of vitamin C. So we want to make sure that you're not on any medications that are contraindicated. We want to know what vitamins that you're already taking. It's, um, It's really vital if people are interested and I think everybody should be interested uh, in doing IV nutrient therapy to work with a physician so that they can get some uh, background on the patient before they start, before mm-hmm. they initiate this mm-hmm. therapy. Okay. All right. So we've talked a lot about adrenals and it's time that we close this uh, rather interesting discussion. Oh, <laughs> I know you love talking about this. So, uh, but you have to get back to work and, and so do I. So, Um, Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to check the show notes. Thanks, John, for this conversation and this information. And please make sure you subscribe to our um, RSS feed. And so you can get these podcasts as soon as they come out. Thank you. Have a great day. Yes, have a great day.